Open your Bibles to the book of Amos, if you would, as we uh, spend some time in God's Word and the time that we have left in chapel this morning. Book of Amos. Let's pray together. Father, again, we just want to pause for just a moment to uh, quiet our hearts, to, Lord, not take it for granted that we are, are again gathered together as a college campus community to really look to you with expectation that your spirit will speak to our hearts. Lord, there is much that is on our minds. I know that is true of my life right now. Spring break is coming, and I know that it's true of the students in this room. Um, Lord, there's just so much to do. And uh, when we step out of chapel this morning, uh, our lives are just going to be nonstop for the rest of the day. There are deadlines and papers and exams and material to memorize, papers to write. But Lord, in the midst of all of that, help us again to come as if it is just the, the first or even the last time to this chapel to sit before you and to listen to your spirit. Lord, that this will be a life-changing experience for all of us. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, you have, uh, I want to start by just kind of acknowledging, acknowledging that you have before you today, as really every day, an opportunity of incredible measure. Um, those of us that have been through college and sort of looked back at college at a 5 or 10 or 15 or 20 year remove, uh, look back with the understanding that, a growing understanding, that much of what we are today, what I am today, or what I am not today, or what my friends are today, or my friends are not today, really found its beginning in my college career. It is a very, very significant period of life. The years traditionally between the ages of 18 and 22 are those years which uh, you find yourself making very, very significant, powerful, life-changing choices. What I don't, didn't appreciate when I sat where you are and what I'm kind of growing to appreciate now are, are really two things. And One of those is that the opportunity that I had at college is an opportunity that I never experienced again. It was really a unique time. It was a window of time that God gave me and my friends that I don't think I, I know that I did not really fully comprehend when I was in college. Opportunity knocked louder then in my life than it has ever since. And that's true of you. And that's really tough for you to grasp that, I know, because it was for me and it was for my friends. The second thing that I'm growing in my appreciation of is that what I had to fear most when I was where you are is not the career that I was going to choose, and it's not financial ruin, it wasn't where I was going to live, it wasn't who I was going to live with, it wasn't whether or not we were going to have nuclear war and disaster and whether or not I was going to die in a car accident. But really what I should have feared most when I was where you are is the power or the subtle danger of tiny compromises. And I, I didn't get that. I, I really missed that when I sat where you sit. Just how powerful small steps are. Just how subtle tiny compromises are. Uh, since I've been out of college, 
and you've indulged me and humored me and sometimes just merely tolerate me as I kind of reminisce about my college years and I tell you about my friends. Um, but I have played the game frequently, the so-whatever-happened-to game. Uh, and I seem to be doing that more and more as I get older. So whatever happened to, I did that recently when I went back to West Virginia and met with a guy named Tom, Tom Sharp, a guy that I grew up with from the first grade on, and he and I came to know the Lord about the same time. And I just saw him for the first time in ten years on this last trip home. And Tom and I played this so-whatever-happened-to game with, with a lot of people, and for several several minutes it went into over an hour as we just kind of so whatever happened to this person that we both knew in elementary school and so whatever happened to this person that we both knew in high school and so whatever happened to this person that we both knew at christian college and then we went to seminary together and then tom and i worked together and then we were in church ministry together so we had a lot of common friends and so we played this so whatever happened to game uh, you're gonna you're gonna play that game with more and more frequency as you get older some of you are going to play it for the first time during spring break next week. You're going to go home, and for the first time, you're going to sit down with somebody, and you're going to play the so-whatever-happened-to game. So whatever happened to this person that uh, I haven't seen now for a semester, maybe a semester and a half? Uh, you kind of chuckle at me when I play the so-whatever-happened-to game, but you're going to do it. And you're going to do it with more and more frequency as I've done it. And there are a lot of times that's a great game, and I really enjoy playing it. Uh, but sadly, uh, it's a real, it's a real, can be a very heartbreaking game as well. John played that game in Second John chapter, Second uh, John verse four. He played it. He kind of made the same statement. So whatever happened to the people that I invested my life in? And his response in that particular occasion was very positive. And you're going to have that experience as I have. And he said, you know, what has happened to the people that I invested my life into spiritually is that they are continuing to walk with the Lord. And for that reason, I greatly rejoice. John played that game and found great uh, encouragement from it. Uh, oppositely, though, Paul played the game, and you know that. And he said that he experienced no greater grief than when he received news that those of, with whom he had invested his life and those with whom he had at one time walked with the Lord now are spiritual casualties. You remember in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 13, Paul is in Troas and, and he is waiting with great excitement and anxiety for Titus to come because Paul is saying, I want to know whatever happened to these people and, and where's Titus anyway? I want to know what happened to these people. It was a great issue in Paul's heart to find out what happened to the people down the road people that he at one time ate with and lived with and knew on a daily basis, but now because life had turned for him and for them, they saw each other so infrequently. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul played the game again and, and now is talking about the Galatian Christians. And so whatever happened to this group of people that I spent time with, that I used to know and used to eat and drink and breathe and worship with and sing with and praise God with, and that occasion, it wasn't so favorable. And that occasion, the Apostle Paul said, whatever happened to those people? And he responds with the word that in the English text is translated marvel, but it's really not a good word because that kind of leads us to think that he's saying, wow, kind of like almost with a, a grin on his face. But that's not what's happening at all in Galatians chapter 1. And that occasion, Paul is saying, so whatever happened to 
these people that started out so good and now are spiritual ruin. In fact, he was so upset about it that he turned to address the people that had influenced those of his friends in the wrong direction. And he said of those people, boy, I wish that they would just be accursed. He was so adamant and so burdened by the continuing walk of the people that he invested his life in. You know, we come together three times a week and you meet in your classes and you have meetings in your dorms and there's all sort of formal, informal things that go on in this campus. And I can really honestly say it is our heart as a staff that you will continue to walk with the Lord this afternoon that you will do that. This afternoon that you will be faithful to be godly in your motives and your choices. I mean, that's what I want for you. That's what the faculty want for you. But it goes beyond this afternoon. I mean, I think with Paul and, and others in the New Testament, we can say as a college staff and faculty that we really want to hear that next year, those of you that are graduating, you're walking with the Lord. And two years that that's what's happening. In three years. I mean, that's our desire for you. I mean, we want that for you. It's not just a matter of this week while you're in our presence, but next week, next year, the next ten years that you'll continue to walk with the Lord. But more significantly than that, that's not just our desire, but that's God's desire for you. It's something that God wants very much. In fact, God wants so much for you not to find yourself in spiritual ruin that in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, he said, you know, there are things in the Old Testament that occurred and I preserved their record for the simple purpose of allowing those things to be an instruction and a warning to you today so that you won't find yourself, once having great spiritual privilege and blessing and opportunity, somewhere down the road be discovered in spiritual ruin that you would be one of the people that somebody else in this room will tell the story about. Maybe when I'm gone and dead and somebody steps into my position, maybe one of you here at the college. And 20 years from now, you're up here and you're saying, so whatever happened to... And you name someone that's in the room right now. And when you name their name, it's not because you're going to give praise to God of how faithful you've been, but because this person that we all thought would do such a great job for the Lord that we all would describe as a person that had such great opportunities and such great potential as a person who's now spiritual ruin. It is a... It is one of the most difficult things in my life right now. To go back to my home and have contact with my friends that I knew in college. It's almost to the point now that I don't even want to do it. My roommates, guys that I went on mission teams with, like these guys that were up here this morning, guys that I traveled with, guys that discipled me, I've told you about some of these people. It is really a, a heart-wrenching experience for me to hear those stories. When Tom told me this last two weeks ago about Danny, a guy that lived two miles from me my entire life, who got saved when I got saved, went to college with me. He and I went to seminary together. 
His parents, my parents, are friends. His dad taught me in high school. I played baseball with his brother. His brother went to school with my brother. I mean, I asked Tom, I said, so how's Danny doing? I haven't seen Danny. He's been in Washington State. How is Danny? And I told you a few days ago. Tom said, man, Dave, Danny is a mess. He hasn't got one ounce of spiritual interest in his life. And that is really hard. Danny and I did what you're doing right now. We, we laughed together and we ate together and we prayed together. We went on mission teams together. Danny was everything I always wanted to be. He was smarter than me. He was more athletic than me. He could sing. I couldn't sing. He could play an instrument. I couldn't play an instrument. He had parents that were really sharp. My parents were never that sharp. I mean, it's just like everything Danny had, I wanted. He had such such opportunity, such privilege, such giftedness. And Tom says he hasn't got a spiritual interest in his body. You know how else that impacts me, though? And you'll feel this someday. It also scares me a little bit. It's like, does this just happen to everybody? Is this just inevitable that this is going to happen to me? I mean, is it, is it, am I just kidding myself? Have you ever felt that already yet in your young life? Am I just kidding myself? I mean, it's not just the Dannys. It's the, it's the Dave Hawkins of the world and the Michael Kikorses of the world. It's the big guys and the tiny guys. It's the guys I know and the guys I don't know. It's the guys that are sort of mediocre and the guys that are just home run kings. None of them are... I mean, it's just every single day almost people walk away from the Lord and it's almost like you feel like, well, we just... Am I just kidding myself? Is it possible to continue to walk faithfully with the Lord over a period of many years and not just find yourself in spiritual ruin? Well, the Apostle Paul again, 1 Corinthians chapter 10, said, you know what? God has preserved circumstances that occurred thousands and thousands of years before this day to help us with that goal. And it's interesting in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, the first four verses, he describes enormous privilege and spiritual benefit that the children of Israel had. But but in verse 5, look what he says again. But with many of them, the Lord was not well pleased and they were overthrown in the wilderness. In effect, God wants us to play the whatsoever happened to game with people in the Old Testament. That's exactly what he's doing with the Corinthian believers, the Apostle Paul is. He's saying, you know what? God wants you to do that. He wants you to say, so whatever happened to the children of Israel that had so many privileges and so many blessings and so many opportunities that were before them, that were theirs, that were in their grasp, and they had even entered into at some level. God says, play that game because it will help you in your faithfulness in your relationship with me. The opportunity to ruin cycle, I suggest, because of what God teaches us in 1 Corinthians 10 and other places, is not, in fact, inevitable. It frightens me sometimes when I see it and I think it, it, maybe it is. But it is not. God says that it is not. You don't have to be a person that ten years from now we talk about as an illustration in chapel. It is not inevitable. You do have opportunities. You do have privilege. 
But spiritual decline and ruin is not inevitable. And to help us with that, God says, there are things that happened to people before you that you must go to school on. I supernaturally preserved their record in the Bible so that you would go to school on them. And in 1 Corinthians 10, he said, so that they will be a lesson for you. They will be an example for you, a warning for you to preserve you from the same experience. And that's exactly what happens in the book of Amos. When we come to the book of Amos, we come to a people that are experiencing spiritual privilege at a level that heretofore had never been experienced in their history. They were at the zenith of their spiritual and material affluence and influence. But yet, it's interesting, 15 years from the point when Amos goes into the northern kingdom of God's people and pronounces his judgment, Fifteen years from that point, a man named Tiglath-Pileser III, an Assyrian king, will march into Israel, the northern kingdom, and his armies will roll down into the cities and they will bring them to ruin forever. That's what's happening in the book of Amos. God takes a very insignificant little young man who has not got a resume of great family heritage, of great training and skill. He's just really a nobody. He's a shepherd and he's a farmer. God takes him from the southern kingdom of Judah and he tells him to go into to the northern tribe of Israel. And he says to Amos, Amos, I want you to go into Israel and I want you to tell them my word and this is what I want you to tell them. And in Amos chapter 1, look at verse 2. And the Lord said, listen to what he says, what he has Amos proclaimed to the children of Israel. The Lord will roar from Zion. That's the essence of the entire book. What God is saying to Israel is that he wants them to know that judgment is coming. And in fact, in 15 years we will find it consummated as they come to ruin. And that's Amos' message. And when he roars, look at chapter 3, verse 4, and when the lion roars in the street or in the forest, it says, does he have no prey? And will a young lion cry out of his den if he has taken nothing? Amos' point there is, when a lion roars, he is roaring because the prey is already in his grasp. He's got it in his claws. He's not chasing it. It's a done deal. That's Amos's point. It's a done deal. Judgment is a done deal. It's going to happen, and there's nothing now you can do about it. That's the message. And he identifies the lion for us very clearly in this book, and he identifies the prey. The lion is God, and the prey is God's people, to whom he had distributed such great spiritual privilege. And in the book of Amos... Now keep this in mind because you say, well, Dave, this happened almost 3,000 years before today. What relevance does it have for us today? I suggest to you that the very point of Amos, obviously it is not so that 
through some remedial or, or restorative process, God is going to preserve the kingdom. He's already decided it's going to happen. The lion has his prey and his claws. Rather, we find the meaning of Amos revealed to us in 1 Corinthians 10 again. It's for you and me. God chose to send his judgment to Israel and not make it happen in a corner somewhere. He didn't take place and just say, well, let's come over here in obscurity and in darkness and kind of out of sight. I'm going to bring judgment upon Israel. He didn't do that at all. With very public purpose, God brings his judgment upon Israel so that you and I can learn from it, so that you and I can go to school on it, so that you and I will be impacted by this incident in such a way that we will not come to spiritual ruin. That's what God is doing here. And he wants all succeeding generations of believers to hear and to learn from the opportunity to ruin cycle that occurs in the book of Amos. Someone said that the only damnation that is greater than not receiving the grace of God is the damnation that comes from having received God's grace and failing. That's, that's a pretty significant statement. The only thing that's worse than never receiving the blessings of God is to have the privileges of God and to squander them. And that's exactly what the message is that we find in Amos. They had great opportunity. Again, they were at the height of their influence and affluence, but judgment came. At this time in Amos's day, they were without threat militarily. They had great material prosperity, but judgment came. They performed loud and far their allegiance to God in song and in sacrifice. They carried out with faithfulness their worship. They gave verbal assent to God as the creator of the world and as the one who rightfully deserves their allegiance. But judgment came. And when it came... It was God's intention that Israel then and you and I now don't get confused into thinking that the real issue of judgment was Tiglath-Pileser. And that he was really the cause and the explanation historically of Israel's ruin. Because it isn't. And that's really a part of the central message of the book of Amos. He's not the problem. Assyria is not the issue. We're not talking the issue of opposition and the issue of environment here. The real issue of why Israel went from tremendous spiritual blessing and privilege and opportunity to ruin has everything to do with their own moral choices. The subtle danger of tiny compromise. If you look at chapter 2, back up from where you were in chapter 2 of the book of Amos, in verse 6 it says, The Lord says, For three transgressions of Israel, and for four I will not turn away the punishment thereof, because they sold the righteous for silver, and the poor for a pair of shoes. Do you think, 
oh man, this isn't anything all that bad. I mean, they were doing a lot of things great. In fact, if you were to take out the scales of spirituality, there was a lot of things over here that we would say was very positive. And this just doesn't seem to be all that weighty against all the good things that they were doing. But what the prophet is saying to the children of Israel in this verse is simply that they ignored their responsibility to care for others because they were so obsessed with personal gain. They sold the righteous, and they sold the poor. They didn't see that the reason God gave them the privileges that they had and the blessings they had was not for it to be an end in themselves. It was rather to be used as an instrument to use to bless and to minister to others. And they lost that. All of their privileges and blessing became an end to them. That wouldn't be unlike what is likely to happen to you at a Christian college. That you start viewing chapel as something that we do for you so that you can feel good about you. That's not what chapel is all about. We put chapel together to bring you into the presence of God so that you will be again renewed in your commitment to take what God has given you to touch the lives of others around you. Chapel isn't for you. It's for God. And you're here, and we invite you here so that you will go out of this room to not just to continue to worship God and to give to God, but to give to the others around you. Chapel is not about you getting. It's about you giving. Your classes aren't about you getting and amassing knowledge so that you can continue to put your arms around more and more material possessions. It's about becoming the right kind of person that God wants you to be so that you can be better at giving of yourself to others and to God. And that is, it's so easy to, to, to get off track on that, isn't it? It is so subtle that we start thinking that everything in my life exists for me. And we start interpreting every spiritual activity and evaluating its value and worth in my life on the basis of what it does for me. I'm here to get. How was chapel today? Well, it was okay. What do you mean by it was okay? Well, I liked the speaker, or I liked the music, or, or it, I enjoyed it, or I laughed. How subtle that is, isn't it? That's not for you. Chapel is for God. And it's to draw you into God's presence so that you will be again challenged, as I said, to give yourself, not to take. How is this class? Oh, man, you don't want that class. Why not? Well, you know, I didn't. I, I had to work. I didn't like it. I mean, it disrupted my life. And chapter, that class isn't for you. It's for God. That professor is in the classroom lecturing, not with your comfort in mind, but with God's glory and their responsible life to stand before a holy God and lecture faithfully. That's what they have in mind. And to again challenge you to not be a person who is focusing on getting, but giving. Christian colleges are, are the most ripe environment in the world to fall prey to the subtle danger of tiny compromise on that issue. The compromise of, my blessings are for me. What God's doing in my life is all for me. And I'm just... I'm just really enjoying it, and I'm just sitting over here just taking it in, and, and it's all about me, isn't it? It's not about you. 
each week that you come into chapel and receive teaching from the Word of God, and each week that you go into a classroom and someone challenges by their life or by their teaching about the truth of God or the truth of God's universe and world, and you do nothing with it, you come closer and closer and you fall deeper and deeper into the compromise that Israel fell into in the book of Amos. This is here for me. And what life is all about is me getting, not giving. That's what was going on. God blessed Israel. He gave them material possessions. He gave them leadership. He gave them a land. He gave them military security. And they saw all of that as something that was just for them. Not as a means to an end for them to continue to serve God. No big deal, is it? I mean, it's not like it's homosexuality. It's not like bestiality. It's not like drug addiction. It's not like all of that other stuff that we find so wicked in the church. It's just real small stuff. It's just an attitude change. And it's very subtle. And it's very deadly. This college exists for me to get. And I enjoy it. The dust of the earth on the head of the poor and they turn aside the way of the meek. What's he saying there? They turn aside the way of the meek. What he is saying to the children of Israel is there's another subtle danger of tiny compromise. There's all a part of your collapse and ruin. One is you've compromised by thinking that blessing is for you to get and not for you to give out of. The other compromise is that you have simply allowed yourself to do nothing about protecting other people's interests and rights. And you have it within your ability to do that. And when presented with the opportunity to either choose something for yourself or to choose to put aside your own need and to help someone else, you choose not to do that. And it's within your power to do that. And you know what's interesting about verse 7? Really, initially, it's in their power just verbally to do that. You turn aside the meek. Someone comes to you and they are needy. They are genuinely needy. The meek, it is, it is a picture of someone who has maybe physical or spiritual need of, of any sort. And he really doesn't define it any further so as to leave it very general. And when that person is brought into your world, maybe it's a roommate or, a, or someone on your wing or someone in your class or someone in your family, and you have the opportunity initially just in a verbal way to assist them, you'd make the choice to not do that. You turn them aside. The need is presented to you. You see that there is a need, and you turn them aside. It's something that's not all that wicked, is it? I mean, you say, you say, man, Dave, I thought in chapel this morning, man, we'd really be blasted with just a, you know, the darkness of sin and wickedness and debauchery. And that's not what Amos is saying. That's not God's message. He said, you know, it's just it's little things. It's when presented with an opportunity to minister to someone, you choose not to do it. Now, that isn't exactly one of the seven deadly sins that John talked about, is it? But God is telling Israel that's exactly how you started in the direction. That's what put, that's the clause that got a hold of you that led you to spiritual ruin. You established 
a pattern in your life that when someone had a need, you were unmoved by that need, even if meeting that need just simply meant something verbal that you could share. Not a big deal. Not real costly. I mean, words are pretty cheap. You didn't have to spend any money or an enormous amount of time. But someone needs the ministry of your words. But you're so consumed with your own life and you're so consumed with your own comfort and your own issues that you're not even willing to share your own word in ministry. You're going to face that next week when you go home in spring break. You're tired. You're, you're wanting to break. You're wanting to veg. You want the remote control. You want your chips and you want your soda. And then mom comes into your room and says, Hey, uh, remember so-and-so went to school with you? Yeah, I remember. Oh, they, they called and they want to come over. And you know what you think? Oh, my. This person's not a believer. I know I'm going to, I know I'm going to have to talk to him about the gospel. Or if I see him, I'm going to feel guilty about not talking to him about the gospel. I am really enjoying the chips and the soda and the remote control. You know, and you think, what kind of wickedness is that? But that's exactly what Amos is confronting Israel with. It's not a big thing, is it? It's not a big, dark thing that you and I would say, well, let's invoke, let's invoke church discipline on this person. Why? Because it's the sin of Doritos. No, it's just a very small, subtle, tiny compromise. God gives you the opportunity to minister to someone and in a very small, almost costless way, and you choose not to do it. And that's what Israel was doing. The third thing, look at the end of verse 7. Where did they also fall guilty of tiny compromise? It's very clear in the text. One, they compromised because they started to think that blessing was for them and not for them to give out of. Two, they compromised by not taking the opportunity when presented to them to minister to someone else. Three, they compromised by rationalizing sexual improprieties. They just rationalized it. And they felt okay about it. Look what he says in verse 7. And a man and his father will go into the same maid and to profane my holy name. The subtle danger of tiny compromise. They rationalized sexual issues. And they were very good at it. In fact, they were so good at it that in chapter 3, verse 10, God finally says, you have done this so much, you have compromised things so much, you have silenced the conviction of the Holy Spirit so frequently, you have turned away people in need so commonly that now you don't even know how to choose right from wrong. In fact, in verse 8 in chapter 2, he says, you know what is incredible? Is that somehow you have so silenced your conscience through the habitual pattern of subtle compromise and tiny compromise that you can actually hold in one hand righteous activity and the other hand sinful activity and not see any problem with it at all. Some of you are doing that right this moment. Every single week of this year, you have done that very thing. And you're doing it right now. You come into chapel and you sing, and you say, God, I 
to you I lift up on high praises. And every single week of this year, you have walked into this chapel knowing that right after chapel, you're going to walk into a classroom and cheat, or you're going to turn in a paper where you've plagiarized, or that you took a dollar, you were in your roommate's roommate's dresser this morning and you saw a dollar you walked by stuck it in your pocket and you weren't even convicted about the whole thing and you walk into chapel and God says you know you have been so subtle and the steps have been so tiny that you actually walk into the place of worship and you become a part of a community that praises me and offers sacrifices for me and it doesn't even bother you that you sinned just prior to it and have already plotted to sin as you leave. Isn't that incredible? You say, Dave, I I could never get to that spot. Some of you you are there right now. This weekend, you have planned immoral, ungodly, impure activity already. We know you have. I mean, we don't have the rules and the codes and the cameras and the dogs and the fence to keep you bound in. But it's not like we're stupid. It is happening, and we know it's happening. And what's worse, some of you know that your friends are doing it, and you're not doing anything about it either. And you're compromising. Look at the compromise. Some of you are compromising because you're actually doing it. Other of you are compromising because you're not willing to risk your own comfort to minister to that person who's in sin, even verbally. Right? That's happening. Last week, some of the students that are in this room this morning drank and got drunk and lied and cheated and were involved in sexual immoral activity. You're here right now this morning. And you sang with us this morning, didn't you? Some of you have already this week cheated. And you sang very beautifully this morning. How in the world do we get there? How in the world do ten years out of college do you and I find people that are in spiritual ruin? I just gave you the explanation for the book of Amos. Because you've gotten to the point where you've so grown accustomed to tiny compromises that you can actually come in and worship and praise God and go unaffected, be unaffected in your conscience. Boy, if that's you, there's two things I pray for you. One, that you'll get caught big time and that your sin will come out that something's going to fall big time in your life. That would be the best thing that could happen. The best thing that could happen to you would be for your life to crumble in a very powerful way. If that's what it would take to wake you up. The other thing I pray for you is that you'll, if that's who you are, and in any way you're convicted by the truth of God's Word this morning, that after this chapel, you'll get down on your knees And in prayer and tears, you'll say, God, my heart is so cold. How in the world can I be at a Christian college and be exposed to so much truth? And in fact, it is through the regular process of being exposed to truth that I've become just better and better at insulating my soul. 
God, break my heart. Make me tender to righteousness. Boy, Israel never got there. Do you know what? At the Master's College, we talk so much about restoration and forgiveness that sometimes we fail to teach the other part of the equation in God's Word, and that is that God's patient patience and long-suffering is exhaustible. Do you know that's one of the messages of the book of Amos? There's one step that can be the last step. And then judgment comes. I don't know how God bounces that in, his, in, his, in the majesty of His person and character. How God can be a God of forgiveness and perseverance and yet be a God of holiness and justice. I don't know. It's a mystery to me. But I know both are taught in the Scriptures. It is taught very clearly in the book of Amos. The lion roars. The lion has his prey in his claws. It's a done deal. Ruin is coming. Nothing's going to change it. And time and time again, the book of Amos, God says, it's over. The book of Amos isn't to say turn. It's not remedial. This is not restoration, gang. This is judgment came. You took one step too many, and it's over. Wow. It's a scary thought. Can you imagine the, uh, the not-me syndrome that Israel must have felt in the beginning part of the book of Amos as he went through the six nations that were their enemies around them, that didn't worship, the six nations that didn't have the Word of God, the six nations that didn't offer sacrifices and praise and song, the six nations that never gathered formally together as a community to worship God. The book of Amos opens up with that. And God goes through a, a sort of a grocery list of condemnations to these six nations that did not involve themselves in worship and liturgy and praise. Can you imagine the not-me syndrome that Israel must have felt as that was going on, as, as they knew that Amos was proclaiming judgment to all these different nations, at Moab and Amnon and all this, for them to be sitting there sort of smugly saying, you know who, you know who Amos is after? Not me. Can you imagine just how they must have felt that? I'm sure they did. In fact, later on in the book of Amos, Amos accuses them of that very thing. You say, Dave, this morning, I deeply desire my soul in my heart, the deepest part of me, to not be a person whose life will be described as one of spiritual ruin next year or ten years. Is there any way for me to know whether or not I'm the person that this message is for this morning and not the person next to me? Is there any way for me to, to know if I'm vulnerable to spiritual ruin right now in the presence of all this opportunity and all this privilege? Is there a way for me to know? You know, there's a simple test. Can I give it to you? You want to know if you're one of the vulnerable people this morning and it's not your neighbor, but it's really you? Let me give you a simple test. It's found, in, again, in 1 Corinthians 10. Don't turn there. Just listen to the test. Because Paul gave it to the Corinthian believers. You know what Paul said to them? It's very simple. He offered a test to them. He said, you want to know if it's you and not your neighbor? Just ask this question of yourself. Are you who thinketh he stands? That's the test. That's Paul's warning. Do you know what Israel thought in the book of Amos? Ah, them but not us. 
You know what Paul's saying to the Corinthian believers? You know what you're doing when you hear this message of God's hatred of sin and the subtle danger of tiny compromise? You do the same thing Israel did, and you're saying, ah, but not me, it's somebody else. It's another college or another person in this room. It's not me. And Paul said, he that thinketh, he stand, take warning, lest you fall. That's the test. If you think you're beyond the possibility of spiritual ruin, if you think that you can manage the tiny compromises in your life that you're making right now, if you think that God is unconcerned and will not and will continually and perpetually withhold his judgment, even though you know that he knows that you are sinning every single day and the hypocrisy is so blatant in the presence and sight of God, if that's who you are, then Paul says, take heed because you're the person that I'm talking to. Take heed lest you fall. So what do you do? What if you don't want to be that person? Let me just quickly give you four quick things. Just listen to them. Don't even write them down. Listen to these four quick practical suggestions. Number one, if you really don't want your life to be one of spiritual ruin, number one, dedicate yourself to a daily personal intake of God's Word. Dedicate yourself to it. Don't let anything interrupt it. You say, but Dave, it's so hard. My schedule, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. But Dave, it's so difficult to understand. All Scripture is profitable, Paul said. There are days that you don't understand what you're reading. There are days it doesn't seem to have value. There are days that everything seems more important. But the Scripture and God is very clear on one thing. You must commit yourself to a daily intake, personal intake of God's Word. Two, Dedicate yourself to being excellent rather than being successful in your academic career. John Johnson in his book on Christian excellence says, Success bases our worth on comparison with others. Excellence gauges our value by measuring us against our own potential. You know, one of the things that's kind of lulled you to sleep is you compare yourself to your roommate, to your brother, to your sister, and maybe even to your parents. But that's not who God made you to be. Quit thinking of being successful and commit yourself to being everything God created you to be. And if you're less than that, then you're already guilty of subtle compromise. Three, take an educated risk of faith today. We talk about living a life of dependence upon God, but you do nothing with it, do you, sometimes? Take an educated risk of faith. Try something new. Try witnessing. Try teaching and though you've never taught. Try leading something though you've never led. Take a stand in the presence of your friends that you've always wanted to take and that you've always felt you should take, but you've never done it because you didn't want to embarrass yourself or maybe lose their admiration. Take something that requires faith. Take a risk. Take something that's going to require you to look to God and say, God, I can't do this unless you do it in me. Hudson Taylor said, unless there is an element of risk in our exploits for God, there is no need for faith. Wow. Quit managing your world so tightly and neatly that you've eliminated your need to depend upon the resources of a holy God. Do something you've never done and do it soon. Something's going to require you to depend upon God in faith. Four, cultivate a pattern of stick to itiveness. Stick to itiveness. You've got to cultivate a pattern. You've got to quit quitting. You've got to quit dropping classes. 
You got to quit turning in the paper late. You got to quit going to the professor and imposing upon their mercy and compassion and asking them for grace on the deadlines. You got to start cultivating a pattern of faithfulness and perseverance. In Deuteronomy chapter 30, earlier, God said to Israel, right before they went into Canaan, This day I set before you life and goodness, death and evil. I'm going to take you into a period of your life when you have privilege at a level you've never known before. And you know what? The choice between life and death is not going to be found in your enemies. It's not going to be found in your environment. It's going to be found inside you and your commitment to not compromise in tiny ways. My mom in West Virginia has always had a weight problem. I've always had a weight problem. My mom's got a sign on her refrigerator that says this, you are, you are what you eat. And eating always occurs in small bites. That's some of the best theology I've ever heard. Nobody goes into the refrigerator and takes a whole ham out of it and chokes it down. My mom, I went back, my little brother, who was always a rail, I went back after not seeing him for two years and the guy weighs 250 pounds. Well, he didn't just stick a ham in this leg and a, and a turkey in this leg and, and bologna here. My brother is what he eats and he eats in, he eats in very small bites. That's Amos's message to you and me today. The subtle danger of tiny compromise. Quit doing it. Let's pray. Father, Thank you for who you are. Lord, help us to be people of courage and conviction. Lord, help us to find something that is worth living for that's bigger than ourselves.